welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Several weeks ago, I did a message that was designed as a primer for a series of messages that I want to do on the subject of generosity. Um, I called it open, open Heart, Open Hands, and I based it around a scripture in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15, verses seven through nine. And just by way of introduction tonight, I wanna go back just very briefly and kind of take you through what we said. So um, read with me from this passage, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 15, it says, if there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any, within any of your gates in your land which the Lord your God has, is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying, the seventh year, the year of release is at hand and your eye be evil against your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you and it become a sin among you. You shall surely give to him and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing, the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and in all which you put your hand, which, to which you put your hand. For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore, I command you saying, you shall open your hand wide to your brother and to your poor and to the needy in your land. And what I did was I underscored a number of phrases in that portion, not necessarily in the linear order that they occur, but I think in the order that it actually happens in our heart. And I suggested the first thing that happens is a thought is offered to you, okay? It says, take, take note of the thought that comes and uh, you have a thought regarding your poor brother that you will actually sort of hold back from giving. And what I talked to you about was um, that thought, I believe, is offered by what I call a spirit of poverty. And that spirit of poverty offers I thought to you along these lines, it says, hey, don't give that, you, you really can't afford that. If you give that, you'll be left with nothing. Why don't you just be fiscally responsible, save, save it for a rainy day? And this fear of not having that that thought plays on results ultimately if we accept that thought, and by the way, Jesus spoke to his disciples about that thought. In Matthew chapter six, when he's saying, hey, don't worry about what you wear. Don't worry about what you eat. Again and again in that passage, he says, take no thought. And the reason he says, take no thought is that one is being offered. And when that thought is offered, if we accept it, if we embrace it, it results ultimately in a refusal to be open-hearted and therefore a refusal to be open-handed. Resigned to not having, we become resolved to not giving. And I suggested that if we give place to that thought, ultimately it will lead to the, ne lead to the next stage that this scripture talks about, we will harden our hearts. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12, in the message translation, it says, the heart regulates the hands. If our heart is closed off by virtue of accepting that thought of poverty, we then close off our hands and we refuse to give. Ultimately, that will lead to what this passage calls an evil eye. And in the Hebrew, an evil eye has to do with a settled state of being miserly. It consists of a refusal to be generous. I mentioned, by the way, how embracing an ungenerous spirit doesn't do what it promises. That thought says, don't give, you'll need it. If you don't give it, you'll have it. 
However, the ungenerous spirit doesn't deliver us from poverty as we anticipate. It delivers us to poverty. Proverbs chapter 28 verse 22 says, a man with an evil eye hastens after riches and does not consider that poverty will come upon him. It doesn't deliver you from poverty, it delivers you to poverty. In this passage, the antidote to this process that I mentioned, a thought that we accept, a heart that becomes closed, a hand that becomes clenched, and an evil eye, the antidote is a commitment to open our heart to God's love and grace, and therefore open our hands to people, to develop a generous eye as opposed to an evil eye, and the Bible talks about both of those things. In Proverbs chapter 22, verse 9, it says, he who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. So you've got an evil, miserly, stingy eye or a generous eye that is graciously giving. You know what? We can and in fact should be, as followers of Jesus, a radically, pervasively generous people. God has opened his heart and hand to us and having been born again by the actions of a grace-filled, generous God, we can and in fact should be grace-filled and generous. Changed hearts always result in changed hands. Now, when, when um, I announce that I'm going to do something on generosity, you know, you can almost guarantee some people kind of, oh no, here we go. The church and God are trying to raise money. Let me tell you something. God's not trying to raise money. He's trying to raise kids. Okay, and he wants kids to be just like him, grace-filled and generous. Now, a series on generosity almost always will include the subject of money for sure. I think it's actually impossible to be a radically, pervasively generous person in heart without it affecting your money. However, there are more than one forms of currency when it comes to expressing generosity, and money is only one medium of exchange. Currency is about a medium of exchange in value. Money is one expression of value. Physical and emotional space can be another form of currency. You know, the reality is some of us would much rather give money and send a person away rather than share our personal space with them. I know this dates me, but you'll understand. We would rather write a check and send them off rather than invite them in. And the reason we do that is we, we value our personal space as a form of currency more than we value our money. We have a term that describes that state. We talk about checkbook charity. When you're technically generous with one medium of exchange, but miserly in others, you do not qualify as a radically generous person. Another medium of exchange might be our time. Are you radically generous with your time? Are we radically generous with our relational currency? Are we emotionally available? Do we give people our attention? Are we generous with encouraging words, words and support? And in this series, while I do want to touch on money, I want to touch on more than that. I'm hoping to look at a radical generosity that affects all kinds of currencies. I want to begin the series with one verse, and it's the verse found in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. It's the last portion of that verse, and Paul says, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
I was telling the congregation this morning that I can never read that verse without thinking of uh, dear Michael Jones, the all-black flanker of a few years ago who was a wonderful Christian. And when Michael was being interviewed for the program, This Is Your Life, a couple of the people that were interviewing him said he couldn't possibly be Christian because he tackled way too hard. And how did he explain his aggression in tackling with his Christianity? And he quoted this verse, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I love the creativity. I don't think that's what he was uh, talking about when Paul said this, but, but uh, it's hard to read that verse without thinking of that comment. Actually, there's no record in the Gospels of Jesus actually saying these words. Of course, I'm not suggesting that he didn't say it, simply observing that Jesus said more than the Gospel writers wrote down. This saying was obviously passed on orally at first, and then the Holy Spirit prompted Paul to record it. So he says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The word blessed, it comes from a Greek word, makarios. It's usually translated happy. If you've got an amplified version of the Bible, when you go to read the Beatitudes, instead of saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, the amplified always says, happy and to be envied are the poor in spirit. Happy and to be envied. It's translating that word makarios. The, the word actually comes from a root word that has the idea of length, of, of largeness, of life being pushed out to its limits and absolutely flourishing. It's interesting, but that word is actually used to describe God. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, he's called the Makarios God, the happy God. People genuinely desire to know how the limitations that they experience in life, <coughs> excuse me, can be removed and how their life can be pushed out to its full potentials. How can I be happy and flourish? And our culture is falling over itself to try and answer that question and achieve this this kind of happiness. Some of you will remember the first famous phrase in the American Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among them being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Our culture really, really does want to be happy, but we, we aren't doing so well in finding out how, we, how, can, how can we achieve it. So here's Jesus, he steps up to the mark. This, this is red ink, okay? If you've got a, a, a Bible that records Jesus' phrases, this is Jesus talking, he steps right up to the, to the mark, and if I can be irreverent and say, this is truth right out of the horse's mouth. This is from the one who created us and created the world that we live in, and he says, listen, do you want to be happy? Oh my goodness, we're all ears, we strain to listen, and he says, if you really, really, really want to be happy, then be generous. Give away more than you seek to acquire. If you want to be flourishing in life, give. Our response as a culture is a disappointed, shoulders sagging, heart dropping, or whatever, whatever. Because our culture does not believe that. We, we live in a time and in an age when the majority of people in our culture are committed completely to a feverish pursuit of more and more and more in the way of material resources. Items that once were considered absolute luxury items are now required standard fare for most households. 
The one car separate garage has been replaced by the two or three car attached garage for our two or three cars. We have bathrooms attached to every bedroom. We have swimming pools, spa pools, and pool tables. TVs grace every room on top of which we have a dedicated room for our home theater. Every member of the family has a smartphone, a tablet, and a computer. On top of that, we aim for our batches, our boats, and our jet ski or skis. We have accumulated so much that we are running out of space to storage at one of the growth industries of our culture, our self-storage facilities which are growing at the rate of 30% per annum. Question, how much before we'll be happy? How much before we'll be satisfied? What amount do we need to be happy and blessed? Well, John D. Rockefeller, the multi-millionaire, was asked that exact question. How much money is needed to make one happy? And his answer was just a little more. You know, a recent survey was done with people across the economic spectrum, and the question was asked, how much more do you need to be satisfied, to be happy? And it didn't matter what they were earning. It could have been 20,000 per annum at that end or 200,000 per annum at that end. The answer was across the board the same. 33% more would do it for us all. If we could just have 33% more, we would be happy. It, it seems that we are absolutely insatiable when it comes to accumulating things that we think we will be happy, that will make us happy. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised by this. Solomon made that exact observation millennia ago. In Ecclesiastes chapter five, verse 10 to 15, he said this. I'll read each verse and then I'll give you a summary of what the verse really means. So verse 10 says, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. That is, summary, the more you have, the more you want. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. Summary, the more you have, the more people will come after it. Verse 12, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. Summary, the more you have, the more you worry about it. Verse 13, there is a severe evil which I've seen under the sun, riches kept for their owner to his hurt. Summary, the more you have, the more damage it does to yourself by hoarding it. Verse 14, those, but those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there's nothing, uh, there is nothing in his hand. Summary, the more you have, the more you have to lose. And verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb naked, shall he return to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor which he may carry away in his hand. Summary, the more you have, the more you leave behind. When John D. Rockefeller died, someone asked his accountant, how much did he leave behind? And his accountant with a, with a twinkle in his eye said, everything. Our culture is convinced that if you want to be happy, you must have more. You've got to accumulate. All the evidence in every survey I have ever seen contradicts that conclusion. James Oliver, in his book entitled Affluenza, in that book he describes how wealthy nations have increased emotional distress in direct proportions to their wealth. So the richer the nation, the more emotionally distressed its people. It's not coincidental that the word miser is etymologically related to the word miserable. They come from the same root. A sample of super rich people, that is people who are worth more than $200 million, found that 33% of them were less happy than the national average. 
Benjamin Franklin once observed, money never made a man happy yet, nor will it. There's nothing in its nature to provide happiness. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of filling a vacuum, it creates one. So Jesus comes with such counterintuitive wisdom and says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. If you want to be happy, give. And our culture responds, rubbish. You haven't got a clue what you're talking about. Now you might be thinking, well Don, you're preaching to the choir, you're not preaching to the culture, you're preaching to those of us who love Jesus and believe his words. So, so we're different. Well forgive me, but my response is likely to be a somewhat cynical, really? Hmm. You know what, I think there is a significant degree of self-deception that surrounds this idea of giving. We tend to imagine that we give much more than we do. None of us think we're miserly. I've never had a person come to me in 45 years of ministry and confess I'm a miser. Not expecting one either. I recently heard of a man who was worth millions, who boasted to his accountants his accountant of his generosity. Well, the end of year tax, you know, uh, donations came in and the accountant had to do um, the man's tax and he found out how much he gave, $400. I know pensioners who give more than that. You know what? If surveys are to be believed, then the somewhat sobering truth is that we believers give only marginally more than our unbelieving neighbours. In our culture, nearly half, 44 plus percent, give absolutely nothing to absolutely nobody. They, they do not give at all, nearly half. This is radically, pervasively miserly. But we would never consider ourselves in that way. 86% of our culture give less than 2% of their earnings to any form of charity. Now, it comes to the community of faith, and we would imagine, since we're totally committed to Jesus' words, that the figures would be drastically different, and you know where I'm heading with this. So, fasten your seatbelts. A 2019 push-pay survey of church giving revealed that Christians, on average, give 2.5%, so 0.5% more than their unbelieving neighbors. Ironically, that's less than people gave during the Great Depression years of the 1929-30s where we gave a staggering 3.3%. You know, the push pay investigation revealed that 17% of Christians claimed that they gave over 10% of their income, but less than 5% actually did. It seems that we too are not exempt from the self-deception that comes in terms of how generous we are. The, the survey was incredibly revealing. In terms of giving to churches, it has dropped 50% in the two decades since the 1990s. People earning less than $20,000 per annum are eight times more likely to give than those who earn more than $75,000 per annum. That seems to be like a reenactment of the story of the widow's might. People who earn less than 10,000 per annum on average give 2.6% of their income. People who earn over $150,000 per annum on average give 1.6% of their income. 
You know, when we try and convince ourselves that when I get financially stable and I've really got some resources, I will really give, you're, you're living in cuckoo land, I'm sorry. That, that doesn't happen. Jesus, in fact, said, if you are faithful with little, you'll be faithful with much. If you are unfaithful in little, why would you believe that you will be faithful in much? Because you won't. Faithful in little, faithful in much. Unfaithful in little, unfaithful in much. I tell you what, you might be sitting there thinking, Don, I barely have two brass razus to rub together. Start giving some of those razus away. All right, start. No matter how small it is, it might be the widow's might, but if you want to develop a generosity of spirit, you start where you are, not wait to get, get to some imagined place where suddenly you'll change and be a phenomenally generous person. You know, the harsh reality seems to be that the more we earn, the less we give. That's what the survey says. Not only that, Atheism is related not to educational achievement or academic ability. It's more related to how much you earn than anything else. And it goes up after $150,000 per annum. Isn't that interesting? The giving goes down, the unbelief goes up. A couple of other interesting thoughts. Baby, boom, baby boomers and older, that's from people from, say, 54 plus are responsible for 75% of the giving in churches. Gen X, who are born 1965 to 1980, make up 26% of the population, but 19% of the giving. And Gen Y, and I look around and see quite a few of you. Not, not after you, just telling you the survey figures. If you're born between 1981 and 1997, you make up 30% of the population and 7% of the donations. Something desperately is wrong. It seems that generosity, at least as far as it is expressed in church circles, is heading south at an alarming rate. And I want to say to you, we clearly do not believe Jesus' words. There's no other conclusion you can come to. We do not believe what Jesus has said on this issue. We are a generation of unbelieving believers. In preparation for this series, I read a number of books, and one of the ones I read was a book by Christian Smith and Hilary Davidson entitled The Paradox of Generosity. It isn't a Christian book. They're not, I, I don't know what their faith is, but they didn't do it on a Christian basis. They are actually sociology professors at Notre Dame University in the US. And this book is described as the first study on this subject, generosity, to make use of cutting-edged empirical data collected in a groundbreaking multidiscipline study over a five-year period. So this isn't just sending out a little flyer and trying to calculate the results of those people who bother to respond. A five-year multi multidisciplinary study. I'll save you the cost and the time that it might take to read it if you are so disposed by summarizing the content for you. The authors asked and then sought to answer this question. Is greater generosity measured in various ways positively associated with greater well-being? They didn't say they were trying to undo and, and, and tease out Jesus' words, but when Jesus said, you are more blessed and happy when you give than when you don't give, this book answers, is that right? Is, is statistically, is that true? And the clear, consistent, statistical, significant answer was yes. I probably could have told them that for a dollar. Smith and Davidson discovered that the wealth of evidence revealed a consistent link between demonstrating generosity and leading a better, 
happier life. Let me quote for you. Generous people are happier, suffer fewer illnesses and injuries, live with a greater sense of purpose, and experience less depression. The association between generous practices and, well, and personal well-being is strong and highly consistent. Note, however, note, by the way, that in that passage there, it says the practices of generosity. The research linked the results with regular generosity, practices, not, not simply one-off random acts. They noted that generosity changes people through a process of formation and not simply isolated one-off kind behavior. Formation requires time and repetition. It requires recurrent intention and attention. You know what? The Bible could not have said that any better. People say, and the, and the Beatles sang, of course, money can't buy me love or can't buy me happiness. However, I would want to say the research shows that money and, hap and happiness are in fact related, howbeit in a curious countercultural way. It seems that happiness is the result, not of seeking to acquire money and spending it on yourself, but in giving it away. Money may not be able to buy you happiness, but giving it away is associated with greater happiness. Generous habits and practices create enhanced personal well-being, the paradox of generosity. You know, a brilliant quote that I could have used from the book had I had it last, uh, in that last message describes very accurately the spirit of poverty. It says this, by grasping onto what we currently have, we diminish its long-term value to us. By always protecting ourselves against future uncertainties and misfortunes, we are affected in ways that make us more anxious about uncertainties and more vulnerable to future misfortunes. Resigned to not having, we become resolved to not giving, and it doesn't deliver us from poverty, but to it. Listen to the stunning conclusions of this five-year study. Remember, these aren't pastors trying to speak on giving. They aren't Christians writing a book about Christian giving. They are sociologists, and they say the practice of giving away 10% of one's income is associated with the greater probability of being happy in life. Stated in reverse, people who do not give away 10% of their income run a significant risk of ending up less happy than they might have otherwise been. Finally, they say this, Despite clear evidence that generous practices create enhanced personal well-being, it turns out that most people do not live generous lives. And I'm sorry to say, but that includes most Christians as well. 86% of our culture gives 2%. We, we beat them hands down, 2.5%. Something's desperately wrong with us. We clearly do not believe what Jesus has said in spite of overwhelming evidence. Let me conclude by simply reading to you some of the ubiquitous wisdom on this subject. Whichever culture you go to, wherever you go in the world, you will hear statements like this. First of all, Hebrew wisdom. Psalm 112 verse five. It is well with the man who deals generously. That's what Jesus said. If you wanna be well, if you wanna be blessed, if you wanna be happy, give generously. And lends, it says, who conducts his affair with justice. Psalm 37, verse 25 to 26. I've been young and now I'm old, yet I have seen, I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his children out begging for bread. He's ever lending generously 
and his children become a blessing. This passage seems to indicate that generosity has an impact wider than just your personal well-being. It impacts family members. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24, 25. One gives freely, yet goes all, all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. It doesn't deliver you from poverty. It delivers you to poverty. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and the one who waters will himself be watered. In Ecclesiastes 11.1 1 in the message translation, be generous. Invest in acts of charity. Charity yields high returns. Come to the New Testament, Christian wisdom. Luke chapter six, verse 38 in the message translation. Give away your life, you'll find it given back, but not merely given back, given back with bonus and blessings. Giving, not getting is the way. Generosity begets generosity. In 2 Corinthians chapter nine, verse six, remember a stingy planter gets a stingy crop. A lavish planter gets a lavish crop. The Chinese have some sayings. If you're generous, you will gain everything. He who wishes to secure the good of others has already secured his own. Persian wisdom goes like this. Every man goes down to his death bearing in his hands only that which he gives away. Let me ask you some concluding questions. Don't answer trivially or superficially. But do your giving patterns reveal the fact that you believe what Jesus has said? Or if I was able to get your bank statements, would I be able to say to you, you know, you clearly do not believe what Jesus said. Do you believe what he said? Are you, act, are you acting on it? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to shape you and make you a radically generous people? Will you allow, if you're not being generous, the Holy Spirit to come and break the hold that the spirit of mammon has on so many of us, that the spirit of poverty the thoughts that he so readily gives and we so readily receive. Are you willing to say, Lord, would you break that in me? And, and friends, refuse to allow that spirit of deception to hover over your giving and make you feel like you are more generous than you actually are. Practicing generosity will require a profound confrontation with some deep existential questions and fears for most of us, like, who or what do I trust in, really? I mean, I can say I trust in God and we sing it, but my bank statement doesn't reveal that. And if my bank statement does not reveal that, then I would want to ask you, really? Do you really trust Him? Am I alone in the world and do I need to secure myself against an uncertain tomorrow? Or do I have a father, as we used to sing, whose eye is upon the sparrow? Who or what is my place of refuge? These are profound questions. They're not abstract. They can be boiled down to giving patterns. Are you pervasively generous with your money, with your time, with your emotional resources? You know, I suspect that all of us are on a learning curve. There's, there's none of us who are as radically generous as God would want to make us. So wherever you find yourself, maybe we all have to pray, Lord, move me on. Confront those things in me that stop me being all that you want me to be. I want to be a child that looks like you, grace-filled and generous. I do not want to be a miser. It is more blessed to give than receive.
for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.